I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. I'm joined today by Jan Usley, Professor of Marketing at Rutgers Business School, by Jagdish Sheth, who is the Professor of Marketing at the Goizueta School of Business at Emory University, and Raj Sisodia, who's Professor of Global Business at the Babson College. They've been talking about their new book. They've just produced a new book called The Global Rule of Three, Competing with Conscious Strategy. So congratulations on the book, gentlemen, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Your book is called The Global Rule of Three. Jack, could I just start by asking you a very simple question, which is, what is the rule of three? Rule of three is a theory of how an industry gets organized through competition. Through shakeout mergers, an industry evolves into three large players who are full-line generalists, primarily making money through volume and scale. And then you have a bunch of niche players who make money through margin or commanding differential competitive advantage, like a shopping center. You see shopping center anchor department stores. Then you see all the specialist stores, like the limited in the fashion style or Foot Locker, for example, which is a product specialist. So you have a product specialist and a market specialist. Coexistence of this is very key. In the short run, they coexist. In the long run, they compete with each other. This uh, rule of three was first observed by Henderson in January 1976. He actually called it the rule of three and four. He said that basically there are three volume competitors in any market and their market shares were in the order ratios roughly four to two to one. So from that perspective, we could say the rule of three is not a new idea, but you must have had a motive for writing the book. Why did you write the book now? Yeah, there are two reasons. First of all, in the Henderson thinking, it was only the big players, rule of three or four. There is nothing about the specialty and little niche players. We also have a concept called the ditch dwellers, which means if you are neither having a margin advantage, some sort of a differential advantage, nor a scale advantage, you go in the ditch. What we found are number of specific recommendations that comes in. The total concentration of the three full-line generalists is about 70%. The top player must achieve about 40%. Otherwise, there is a further consolidation that happens by number three into number two position quite often. Number two company is about 20%, and number three company has to be about 10%. And very interestingly, in a competitive fight for market share among the top two players, let's say General Motors and Ford, Chrysler becomes the casualty. We have seen this again and again when RC. RCA television set, along with GE, fought for market share. Zenith number three collapsed in the ditch, which is very uncanny. But on the other side is more interesting, which are the niche players. So the super niche, you are farther away from the ditch, which means you have some very unique thing you offer, the safer you are. So typically, when a niche company starts by an entrepreneur and goes into, let's say, IPO very quickly, market puts the pressure, stock market, to actually go grow faster and faster. Surprisingly, as you go from 1% uh, niche to 5% growth, they collapse in the process. So there are many new stuff that discovered that went beyond the general thinking about rule of three. So a question for you, John, if I may, which is why three? So the assertion is that empirically we observe three volume players making money and not four and not two. Why do you think that number empirically is three? There is a Latin phrase I like. Omne trium perfectum, meaning everything that comes in threes is perfect or complete. 
So similarly, we think rule of three acts as the tripod that provides stability to an industry. More than three and you have excessive competition. An example would be the airlines. As you may recall, Warren Buffett famously said, when the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk, if there was a capitalist down there, he should have shot Wilbur. Buffett did not expect the airlines to engage in kamikaze competition and regretted his investments in US airways. And if you have only one dominant player, you can get complacent and you may not innovate and become a fat cat, if you will, which drives down profitability. Microsoft in the 90s comes to mind. This kind of dominance can also attract antitrust scrutiny akin to what Google is facing these days. And when there are two players, they can engage in price force for a fight to the death. And even when they decide to coexist, they may create artificial barriers to entry and engage in excessive product proliferation or limit pricing, which is also suboptimal. In addition to our own empirical findings, by the way, other researchers also conducted meta-analyses of game theoretic findings and their conclusion and the title of their article, drumroll, two are few and four are many. I guess that sums it up well. So it's a sort of trade-off between competition and scale efficiency, perhaps. So Raj, may I ask you, presumably this rule doesn't apply in every case. When, when does it not apply? So the typical exceptions to the rule of three are industries where the market process of, uh, you know, pure competition, consolidation, et cetera, does not really happen. And a few uh, uh, examples of when that is. So when you have an industry where there's a great deal of pattern protection, and so different companies carve out different niches, uh, the pharmaceutical industry historically was like that. Different big companies specialized in, in different therapeutic categories and essentially had a dominant position in those. So that would then result in many companies coexisting. In industries where there's uh, no separation between ownership and management, so many of the professional services uh, businesses uh, were like that, and certainly regulated monopolies by definition, and also markets that are highly regulated. You know, this calls for a light touch in terms of antitrust up to a point. In other words, we allow consolidation until it gets to three, but not beyond that, right? But there are countries where, you know, the restrictions are so many that they actually do not pre- uh, allow for any kind of consolidation. Now, I'd have to say that all of these exceptions are starting to fall by the wayside one by one. So we are finding fewer exceptions to the rule of three over time. In the pharmaceutical industry now, most major companies have drugs in most of the major therapeutic categories. So there's no real quasi-monopolies in that sense anymore. And many of the owner-managed type businesses are now becoming more traditional public corporations. So you've seen the big eight accounting firms, I think, is down to four now, right? four or five, maybe. That, that's also kind of on its way. So I think we're bringing more of this. The only other thing I wanted to add is in terms of Y3, there's also sort of a customer side perspective on that, which is that customers don't want excessive choice. They don't want infinite amount of choice. Right? There's a lot of research on the paradox of choice and so forth. People get frozen if they have too many options. So Jag's own work with the theory of buyer behavior, one of his early primary seminal works, showed that there's a consideration set, what people typically decide between three products. And that was the success of Sears, right? The good, better, best. In every product category, they gave you three options. That gives people enough choice, but doesn't freeze them, right? So from that perspective as well, three turns out to be a good number for customers. So, Jan, I want to ask you about whether we're talking about a static rule here or a dynamic rule. So I can imagine a situation where the three players that dominate are the same three players over time. I can imagine the number three stays constant, but we get a lot of 
interchange in who is on that list. Having analyzed many industries now, would you say that this is a dynamic or a static role? Right. So while market shares tend to be relatively stable year over year, the rule of three is not static at all. No market is immune to radical innovations or macro shocks that reshuffle the deck. Such examples can be found in automotive, consumer electronics, telecom, and the list goes on. We give plenty of examples of this and make projections in the book. One prominent example would be Apple's reshuffling the deck in mobile phones with the iPhone. In quarter four of 2007, Nokia was the proud leader with 50% market share globally. In five years, it went to single-digit share and was subsequently bought by Microsoft. Currently, Samsung and Xiaomi have become dominant globally. However, both were marginal players when the iPhone was introduced and the whole world order changed within less than 15 years. I hear you saying that the rule is dynamic and that markets can be disrupted. But in the mature state before they're disrupted, are the three names stable or are the three slots stable, but the names change on the whole? So as the industry is disrupted, it can change. Otherwise, it is hard for incumbents to come in organically and challenge them. Soft drinks, for example, has been relatively stable over decades. So we have this rule, this observation that three volume players tend to be the mature structure of an industry. And we may have a bunch of profitable generalists too. Why is it useful to think about this? Because in a sense, it's a, it's a paradox to propose rules of strategy because strategy is all about breaking rules and breaking averages and breaking trends and achieving a success through ingenuity. How is it useful for us to think about this empirical observation? Yeah, no, I think it helps us understand our current strategic options. If we are not aware of these dynamics, then you actually may end up engaging in strategies that could be suicidal or that will cause a huge amount of value loss because mm-hmm. you are actually fundamentally going up against some dynamics that you haven't fully understood. So what are the best strategic options? You know, it's not formulaic in the sense that it prescribes exactly what you must do, but it kind of gives you certain boundaries or parameters within which you need to think as a generalist, as a number one, as a number two, or as a number three. And the other part of it is, depending on where the industry or the market is at that point in time, to anticipate the future trajectory, to say where, you know, as Wayne Gretzky would say, I want to skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it is today. So to understand those dynamics and say, this is an industry that is now in the process of consolidation that is evolving towards the next stage of the rule of three. And therefore, how do I position myself for that future? And how do I take strategic actions, you know, whether it be mergers or demergers or whatever it might be, in order to position myself appropriately when that future does arrive? Let's double click on that. So briefly, if I'm a, one of those three generalists, how would I think about strategy? And if I'm in the ditch, somewhere between 5 and 10% market share as you define it, what is my best strategy or how should I think about strategy? And if I'm a, a niche player, if I have less than a 5% market share, How do I think about strategy differently? We can think about a defensive and an offensive strategy. A typical defensive strategy for number one company is to fast follow. Don't be having this view that you have to innovate all the time. You can see this in all the Silicon Valley companies. In computer industry, you've seen that at IBM, Microsoft is a fast follower. Google is a fast follower, for example. Facebook is a very fast follower to maintain their dominant position. And that's true of all of the companies, which are number one, by the way. However, the offensive strategy is growth. How do you grow new markets altogether? 
So you go from domestic to international, for example, or you go into neglected segments. So you continue growing. So the role of Coca-Cola would not be to fight for more market share, but actually grow the market by going to, let's say, China, which is their growth engine now. You go to India, which is their growth engine. That's number one. Number two company, when they are very small, number two, Pioneer invents the industry, 80% market share, proprietary rights are going down, the challenge is the number two company has to, as a defensive strategy, when they are too small, coexist. But when they become significant, 15, 20%, then they must challenge the number one company. This is their strategy. So Pepsi did the challenging. Avis Rent-A-Car did the same thing against Hertz. We can give you examples. Number three company is the most strategic. Their number one strategy is to defend their market share by innovation. In every industry, number three is always more innovative than number one, number two, even though number one and two may have the largest R&D dollars and even commercialization of their inventions or patents. And therefore, the other strategy for the number one company would be growth, invent, disrupt, everything you can do. As a big enough player, you will be able to disrupt the industry. Now, what about the people who are in the ditch? Very simple. Ditch companies can aggregate together themselves and become very big by having a private equity company come in, start with this typical startup thing. You buy one company, you merge with other companies, all of them are suffering right now, and become scale-oriented before you do IPO, for example, or sell it back to some bigger company. Number three company, if it comes from the generalist side, the rule of three side, then it's possible that they become smaller as a niche player from the mass market or large volume players. Now, the niche companies are most interesting. If you are a serial entrepreneur, the best strategy is to create a company, ramp it up in a growth industry, and then sell to the generalist with a huge premium, as we see what's happening today, for example, in uh, cloud computing in some fashion. We have seen many of the silicon places where the serial entrepreneur grows the company up to 4 or 5% and then sells it because they have no emotion of an invention. They're really entrepreneurs primarily. Or if you are an inventor and you want to preserve your position, then you go super niche. Like a Porsche 911, which is a key platform, but now you go into super Porsche from $30,000, $200,000. To $150,000, $200,000. Super niche is another strategy. So your niche that you have, use the cash flow to get into a super niche position. So the rule of three then is not so inevitable and structured that it tells you what to do. It gives you broad guidelines on what is feasible, but there's still a lot of scope for strategic freedom and innovation, if I understand you correctly. Yes, definitely. The key thing, Martin, is very key to find out lots of merger acquisition opportunities. If you're a big player, try to fight for market share and grow is usually not profitable. You lose more money than gaining marginal share. It's much better to acquire a bigger company so long as the justice department or the antitrust department will allow you. Buying out a large peer player is a very key strategy, and that depends upon how far are you on the journey to about 40%. By the way, we find something more interesting also. Above 40%, actually, you are less profitable. The optimal number seems to be 40.5 or 40.1, which is incredible, like a consistency from industry to industry, which says, it is not in the interest of the number one player to become a monopolist. It does not work well. I'm wondering, since you're describing some sort of consolidation or maturation process, which requires time, industries often consolidate very slowly, 
whether in today's world where competitive advantage only lasts a year because digital competition is very fast, whether we ever get to the equilibrium that you're talking about. So I can see that historically we have because your work is based on empirical observation. But moving forwards, I'm wondering, do you think that in 10 years' time we'll still be talking about the rule of three, considering that, number one, it's no longer obvious what an industry means. Number two, the asset intensity of many digital businesses is declining. So some of the things that are barriers to switching between industries are maybe disappearing. Number three, we're getting a sort of um, a new monopolistic tendency, which is the winner-takes-all phenomenon in digital network-based businesses. And also, with innovation being so fast, in a sense, we're in a constant state of disruption. So one could make the thesis that the rule of three was perhaps typical when industries were very discreet, when things move very slowly, when we had plenty of time to reach equilibrium, but not necessarily moving forwards. So how would you respond to that? No, you are absolutely right. It's very dynamic in a fast-moving industry, especially with digital technology. You will have several rounds of rule of three, like in PC business. We used to have an IBM as a company in the PC business, number one, actually, on the PC side. You had Apple as a competitor. You had, of course, uh, Dell computers, etc. It begins to shift then with HP buying out somebody else, etc. So today you see three, four rounds later on, Lenovo is number one from China through the acquisition of IBM ThinkPad, which was a business mostly America-centric. And you now see number two player, basically HP, number three player Dell, but there's a fourth one, Acer. It's moving very fast, but it does converge to our rule of three, stays for a short time before it again starts by somebody else's around. The biggest change we see in the rule of three equilibrium is not technology as we thought, think about which is surprising, or the low asset theory, which I will come to, but turns out to be competition from emerging markets, which has been the key finding we find. Every industry analyzed today, there is one of the top three players from China. And I know that you've, um, you've looked at whether the, what happens when an industry globalizes, and I, if I understand you correctly, your assertion is that when an industry becomes global, it restructures around a new rule of three, which is a rule of three for global markets. So, so you would say, if I put more words in your mouth, that the rule of three applies at a larger scale. Have I, have I got it right? Absolutely right. Exactly. There is no room for nine players. Let's say three players out of European Union, three players in America, three players in Japan at one time. But as the industry globalizes from nine, it drops back to three, which is very uncanny because after you plot the market share, the fourth player has a strong reduction in market share. 40, 2010, and then just dropped to nothing kind of notion on a global basis, surprisingly. Now, you can protect yourself by becoming a regional player. In other words, you decide you don't want to play the global game and concentrate in one geography, maybe Asia as your geography, for example, or India as your geography, for example, or America as a geography. So what we see, Martin, is very interesting. Many of the large American corporations who were truly global at one time, are going to likely to become regional. They will not make the global journey at all. So if you go back to that original Bruce Henderson perspective, 1976, he said along the lines of the art of this is determining the boundaries of natural competition, he said, which is a very subtle issue. Because I could say that I have 100% market share of making green shirts of a particular variety. If I, I can define my niche narrowly enough so that I appear as a monopolist. Or I could say in consumer products, I have 0.1 market share. So there is some discretion in determining boundaries. 
And you've just given us a new variable, which is, do we look at global markets or local markets? How do we determine the natural unit of competition? And then we have the inconvenience of ecosystems, which is in some industries already, it's very hard to define an industry. An industry is no longer a discrete set of competitors that mainly competes on a common end product. Digital platforms often cross industries. So maybe, Raj, if I can put this one to you, how do you make that judgment about the appropriate boundary in order to assess the level of concentration of an industry? Yeah, and I think Bruce Anderson was right in that it is a bit of an art. You know, it's not a uh, hard and fast determination. I think it comes down to who are the competitors who are facing each other in multiple markets, right? In other words, is there a particular game that is being played by multiple entities? And so there's, they're seeing certain common things across different product categories or different markets, and they're choosing to occupy those niches. That means that there is some natural definition or some natural boundary that's emerging in a the market there. It's not an industry level, it's a market level analysis, right? But I think there is some subtlety to that. So you have to look at basically who's competing with whom on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, let me add, competition is not at a company level. It is at a product level. So if you have a product company which is into multiple businesses, so you are competing as a general electric in the engine business with one set of competitors, and you are competing with the energy business with another set of competitors, you cannot do the analysis at the company level, like general electric versus whoever is there like, you know, let's say Siemens or ABB or whatever they are. Power generation is very different competition. So you have to analyze at a product level. Now, here is the irony. The most diversified conglomerates are not what we think about typically, like GE at one time. There are many more like Tata in India. The most diversified companies are packaged goods companies. In packaged goods industry, I may be Procter & Gamble owning a coffee business, I compete with a totally different set of players than I own a you know, detergent business, totally different competition, which is where very fascinating. You should not do the analysis at a company level because that's what the analyst view is. And therefore, they put all of the consumer packaged goods industries as packaged goods industries, but they're really very different. So you have to analyze at the product level that we can well define because analysts define for you quite a lot of product categories about who or the way they analyze. But the other thing is that Sometimes you see at a company level, rule of two, like a Coca-Cola and Pepsi, because one company owns two brands. So in packaged goods companies, we find the best way to understand competition is not even at a product category or a company, but at a brand level. So you have the Coke, you have the Pepsi, and then you have the Diet Coke. Let's wrap up with a, a topical question. I've been fascinated by the competitive dynamics of the, of the COVID shock. Um, the level of resilience of companies is very different. And some companies have not only recovered, but they've actually prospered in new environments. And one immediately thinks of companies like um, Zoom and Airbnb. And others are still in the process of getting back to where they were. Have you discovered anything interesting about the competitive dynamics uh, during the COVID crisis, Jan, or is this sort of orthogonal to everything we've been talking about today? The rule of three depends on consolidation. And the mergers and acquisitions and shakeouts are part of that process. So COVID-19 pandemic may slow down mergers and acquisitions in the short run. It is hard to acquire a company site unseen. But that doesn't mean that any activity will come to a complete halt, of course. It can still happen, say, if due diligence had already taken place. For example, when it comes to food delivery platforms in the U.S., which is merely five-year-old market, by the way, the rule of three has already come about. Grubhub pivoted and became the first player in 2016, 
It currently has 23% market share. By the way, it was just acquired by Just Eat Takeaway from Netherlands in a $7.3 billion deal last June. But Grubhub has already been surpassed by DoorDash with its 43% share as the market leader. And then Uber Eats is the number three player with 22% share. However, Uber Eats also announced that it is acquiring Postmates and its 8% share, so it is poised to become number two. So in only five years, we have reached the rule of three convergence of food delivery, essentially. And post-pandemic, we will undoubtedly see even more accelerated consolidation. The new normal will create fire sales of businesses, which we were unable to adapt to the new realities. And this will also serve to accelerate the formation of rule of three in more and more sectors. So thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. I'd like to thank uh, Jan and Jag and Raj for this thought-provoking book, The Global Rule of Three, which was published by Paul Grave in December 2020. I see it as a neoclassical book in a way. In recent years, strategy has focused more on dynamic capabilities and less on structure. And uh, your book seems to be saying to me that structure is important, but we can think about dynamically about structure too and something is always changing structurally whether it's uh, disruption or globalizations so uh, thank you very much to all of you thank you thank you very much for having us